was diagnosed with ADHD last year. I know that opening an episode that has nothing to do with ADHD by talking about my diagnosis kinda makes me sound like Gabby Hanna circa 2021. This is hyperactivity. This is ADHD. This is the H in ADHD. This is what it's like to live with ADHD. I was masking because I have ADHD. I'm telling you, realizing uh, my ADHD diagnosis, no, I have to stand right here. I was about to walk away. I do that all the fucking time. I fucking start the water of the Brita and then I walk away from it because I have ADHD. ADHD TikTok as well is pretty unbearable and full of misinformation like, I don't know who needs to hear this, but being bothered by the sound of other people chewing is actually not a symptom of your ADHD. It's a pretty common disturbance for all people, including those outside of your little exclusive executive dysfunction club. I'm so sorry to have to be the one to tell you that. But to defend Gabby Hanna and the TikTokers for a second, I'll say that when you're a full-ass adult and you get told by a doctor that you've been neurodivergent your whole life without even realizing it, it is sometimes hard to shut up about your diagnosis because it kickstarts a whole discovery process which will have you recontextualizing pretty much your entire childhood, adolescence, and early adulthood. Looking back at my own childhood, I was exhibiting symptoms of extreme inattentiveness from a very young age, and it made me feel really insecure because I didn't know why, but I just always felt like everyone else was ahead of me, or just present in the world more so than I was. Like, the number of times I experienced the realization that everyone else in the classroom was handing in homework I didn't even realize had been assigned because I wasn't paying attention was, in retrospect, kind of pathetic. Despite my insecurities, though, I still had a huge ego and I was very competitive. I hated feeling like I was bad at anything or that someone else got something over on me, so I became incredibly good at using my intermittent perceptiveness to pick out the smallest bits of information that I would need to trick people into thinking that I knew what I was doing. As a kid though, because I was an only child and hated leaving my bedroom, I didn't socialize with people my own age as much as I think the average kid did. It was mostly just me, my parents, and my dog. But I realized that every time my parents were having a casual conversation and making references that I didn't understand, 10% of the time they were talking about a family member that I probably did meet at some point but couldn't recognize by name because I wasn't paying attention when they were introduced to me. But then 90% of the time they were talking about pop culture or celebrities. At 30 years older than me, they obviously had more time to develop their own repertoire of references 
often from eras that predated my birth, but I hated getting stuck in a conversation with someone where they were referencing things I didn't know about. It triggered the same feeling of embarrassment and shame that sitting in class empty-handed while everyone else turned in their assignments did. Like people around me were just a part of the world in more effective ways than I was. Listening to my parents, I figured out that in order to minimize the amount of time I could get stuck in a conversation like that, was to make sure that I knew as many pop culture references as possible, especially anything related to celebrities. By high school, when I had a TV in my room with basic cable channels, spoiled, I know, I decided that I was going to keep my TV on the E! channel all the time, and I did. I watched all of their programming, every trashy reality show, every true Hollywood story, every mediocre romantic comedy, and of course, just regular old E! news every night. I didn't do it because I was entertained, though I was entertained. I did it for the educational purpose, thinking that in adulthood, being a good conversationalist would mean knowing a shit ton about celebrity gossip. I might have gone a little overboard in my educational pursuits. Welcome, by the way, to the Medusini Podcast, a pop culture podcast where I talk about celebrities way too much. But I also wouldn't say that I was wrong. To this day, I know very little about World War I. Really, all I know about it is that Adolf Hitler took Germany's loss, like, really hard. But my ignorance in regards to world history has yet to really affect me in my adult life. I haven't needed to know about World War I in any casual conversation I've ever had. If I didn't know who Nicole Snooky Pelizzi was, however, I definitely would have found myself in a couple discussions in which I felt a little lost. I can already hear some of you more pretentious listeners saying, what a sad commentary that is on our modern society. But let's be clear, people knowing and talking about pop aka lowbrow culture more than historical events isn't a new phenomenon and it's not even preventable or necessarily bad. If the average American is expected to work 40 hours a week and only get two days off, which is often spent running the errands and doing the chores you couldn't do on a workday anyway, do you really expect people to spend their downtime trying to learn about global politics or whatever topic we might deem as more important than the trashy exploits down at the Jersey Shore? Of course people are gonna want to intake media that has a low demand for emotional or intellectual labor and is relatively easy to access on a low to median income. Maybe I should know more about World War I, but to be honest, learning about events where millions of people died is kind of a bummer. 
and I suck at remembering dates, the names of battles, generals, or sometimes even just countries. Geography is not my thing, and it never will be. So leave me alone. I have ADHD. Learning about celebrity drama, though, is fun. It's emotionally engaging, but from a safe distance so you can hypothesize about why Brad and Angelina broke up without actually having to deal with any of the emotional baggage of their divorce that you would if you were intimately a part of their lives. And isn't it interesting that when I said Brad and Angelina, you knew who I was talking about without me actually having to give any context. I didn't even say their last names, but you didn't need me to. Because most of us already hear about celebrity scandals on a daily or near daily basis, and we talk about those scandals with each other. Because if celebrity gossip is so accessible to the average American, we can use our knowledge of it as a tool for social bonding and community. This is all a long intro to express my deep frustration every time I hear someone imply that celebrity and quote, lowbrow culture is 100% frivolous or unimportant. How could something that everyone is talking about all the time possibly be unimportant? The way we talk about the seemingly frivolous events of celebrity culture is revealing for American sociology and what celebrities do does affect us, often in such transformative ways that it can be hard to pin down. I know that a lot of people will roll their eyes when they see the title for this episode and realize I'm talking about the Kardashians, a family that's become synonymous with vapid entertainment and gluttonous tabloid culture. And certainly at this moment, the Kardashians' presence in the media is sometimes overbearing and tiresome. But... That's exactly why I think it's important to talk about them. If you're annoyed that the Kardashians are as famous as they are, I won't argue with you about whether or not they deserve that fame. The entertainment industry has never been a meritocracy, so I don't think there's a way to say that anyone does or doesn't deserve their success since there's no way to objectively earn it. But I will argue with anyone who says we should stop talking about the Kardashians because they don't matter. Since their official entrance into the world of celebrity in the late 2000s, the Kardashian family has had an immeasurable impact on reality TV, social media, western beauty standards, tactics in advertising and marketing, and more. And they developed their capacity for influence by being keenly aware of how celebrity as a practice operates. They are experts in maintaining their fame. Plus, they were oftentimes in the right place at the right time, 
making their reign over pop culture outlast any of their predecessor celebutants. Paris Hilton is still iconic, but she didn't hold on to her it girl status as securely as Kim K managed to. Understanding how the Kardashians succeeded where those who came before them couldn't means trying to understand how the entertainment industry works, and that's indicative of how we as a society consume content. So this is episode one of a retrospective series about the Kardashians that we'll come back to intermittently throughout the podcast. We'll take a chronological look at the history of America's royal family, not only to trace their development as people and as a brand, but to talk about what that development says about us and our values. I can't say that it's going to be an objective look at the Kardashians because I'm making it, and I'm not, nor have I ever attempted to be an objective party for anything. I have opinions, and they will come up, but to be clear, this is neither a pro nor an anti-Kardashian series. My goal isn't to gas them up and inflate their value for our society, but it's also not to imply that they represent everything wrong with the world either. So whether you're a Kardashian stan or not, at some point I'm probably gonna say something that pisses you off, but I'll probably also say something that you agree with. So in my opinion, you should just keep listening. I know I'm biased, but that is my recommendation. For the first episode of the series, obviously we have to discuss the background of the Kardashian family and explore what they were up to before they became a lightning rod for discourse, though as we'll discuss, they existed on the perimeters of cultural discourse long before the leak of Kim's sex tape. But as we get into all of this, I have to issue a moderate to severe trigger warning for this episode. There will be some brief but intense discussions of domestic abuse, domestic violence, and naturally, murder coming up. So feel free to tap out whenever you need to. Before all of that though, this story starts with a girl named Chris Hewton, the daughter of Bob Hewton and MJ Shannon. MJ owned a children's clothing store and Bob was an engineer and prospective entrepreneur, but his dependence on alcohol squandered his potential and Bob essentially abandoned his family when Chris was about seven years old. Chris kept in touch with her father infrequently, and he died when she was about 20, but she was raised primarily by her mother and grandmother, already setting a standard for the Kardashian family's popular conception as a matriarchy. As much as women have always reigned Chris's household, 
Hers and her daughter's relationships with men have not always left them the most empowered. I bring this up because while there are absolutely legitimate reasons to criticize the Kardashians that don't worry we'll get to, a lot of the demonization I see of them likes to portray the family as a pure matriarchy that takes advantage of all the men in their lives and possibly even ruins their lives, but in most of the relationships the women enter, they're not the ones holding most of the power. We can see that early on with Chris's first serious relationship with pro golfer Caesar Sanudo, who Chris met when she was 17 and he was 29. At least that's the approximate age, but more on that in a second. Caesar may not have been the most age-appropriate partner for a still underage Chris, but he was rich and led a lifestyle that Chris, her mom, and her grandmother all admired. Chris and Caesar quickly got engaged and moved in together. By together, I obviously mean Chris moved into Caesar's house since he was the one with the cash flow. I know plenty of people will look at that situation and others to follow and deem Chris a gold digger. And to that I say, so, I am a passionate defender of the gold digger, at least in its popular conception. What people are usually talking about when they're calling someone a gold digger, it's a woman, usually young and conventionally attractive, who takes advantage of a rich, usually older man for his wealth and lifestyle. I'll be honest, I don't see a problem with that. Historically and currently on average, men make more money than women. They also have more social influence while women are more often sexually objectified and many women decide to make their living from profiting off of that objectification. Obviously, some women work in the adult entertainment industry or as sex workers, but even in more menial industries, women find ways to profit off of the male gaze. Are you tired of bikini bars with hideous girls? Then go to the finest bikini bar, Cloud9 Sports Bar in Long Beach. They have the youngest, hottest, and friendliest bikini bartenders. Lady Jane, haircuts for men, leather recliners, flat screen TVs, the most beautiful stylist ever giving you an awesome haircut for only 10 bucks. Lady Jane's, are you man enough? You gotta get down to Hooters. Here she comes, a girl next door. While many of us have a romanticized view of marriage and monogamous partnership as something full of passion and mutual adoration, some people make the decisions in their love life based pragmatically upon the kind of life they want to lead, not necessarily a partner they're obsessed with. 
And even though women are the ones primarily shamed for marrying men they're not head over heels in love with, statistically, marriage as an institution benefits men way more than it benefits women. Fun fact, studies have shown that on average, becoming a widow actually boosts women's happiness. So many women out there are just quietly waiting for their husbands to die, whether they realize it or not, and most of their husbands probably aren't even rich. So I don't see why we're so shaming of women who want to get something more out of the deal, especially when, for most of American history, women were expected to be unemployed homemakers whose economic standing was predicated solely on the income of her husband. Maybe Anna Nicole Smith did go into her marriage waiting for her 80-year-old husband to kick the bucket so she could get a big payout, and I wouldn't blame her. If you, as a hot 20-something-year-old with great tits that you invested money into and underwent surgery to achieve, decide to have sex with a creepy 80-something-year-old billionaire under the promise that he'll take care of you and your child financially for the rest of your life, you earned that money. Let's not pretend the octogenarian is a victim in that situation as if he had pure intentions going into the relationship. In most classic examples of women getting accused of being gold diggers to their male partners, there's also a flip side with the male partner just wanting a hot young trophy wife. It's an equally transactional affair. Don't you know that a man being rich is like a girl being pretty? You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty, but my goodness, doesn't it help? And if you had a daughter, wouldn't you rather she didn't marry a poor man? But I was... You'd want her to have the most wonderful things in the world and to be very happy. Oh, why is it wrong for me to want those things? So I don't want to hear any shit about how Kris Jenner was wrong for always taking up with men potentially for her financial benefit. With Caesar Sanudo, she was a 17-year-old taking advantage of a grown-ass man who was probably already taking advantage of her youthful naivete. But the lush lifestyle she got with Caesar didn't satisfy her for long. Chris likely had many affairs over the course of her life, though most of them are only alleged. What Chris herself has confirmed, though, is that while she was engaged to and living with Caesar, she began a relationship with a successful attorney named Robert Kardashian. Like Caesar, Robert was older than Chris, though exactly how much older is unclear. Chris published an autobiography in 2011 called Chris Jenner and All Things Kardashian. I didn't have time to read it, but I did have time to listen to the two episodes the Celebrity Memoir Book Club podcast made about it, and they made some points about the inconsistencies within the book regarding Chris's age. Chris claims she met Robert when she was 18 and he was 29, 
But the podcasters Claire and Ashley have a different idea. I went and did some math, actually. Uh-huh. I, unlike Chris, who can't figure out if Bruce and OJ were at the same charity golf tournament, was able to use Google and very <laughs> easily Google and find out when Cesar Sanudo, her golf boyfriend, played Arnold Palmer. And it seems like he played her the year that Chris would have been 16, which makes sense to me because she never says after I graduated high school, I moved in with this guy. She just says, I can't believe I was in high school and my parents were letting me do this. Wow. 16 is fucking murky. Because also listen to in addition to being older and richer than Chris, Robert was also extremely well connected to people in the entertainment industry. When he wasn't with Chris, for example, Robert spent some time dating Priscilla Presley, the ex-wife of Elvis Presley and aesthetic influence for Lana Del Rey's early career. Robert's best friend was also a man named O.J. Simpson, but we'll come back to him later. So Robert proposed to Chris when she was 19 years old, she declined, which then made him angry, and the two broke up. Afterward, Chris became a flight attendant and got her own place, but soon her and Robert got back together. About six months later, she moved in with Robert, but he made her move out shortly after, claiming his religious beliefs made their arrangement sinful since they weren't married. Chris moved into her own apartment again, but obviously couldn't afford the type of lifestyle she'd been accustomed to with Robert with a flight attendant salary. So when a little while later Robert proposed marriage to Chris again, she obviously accepted and they quickly got married. I can't speak to Robert's intentions, but teasing and then withholding your lifestyle from your exceptionally young and not professionally established girlfriend seems a little sus, like his wealth and connections were a reward that Chris could only earn through her commitment to him, making her accept his proposal a few years after she initially declined. Since I didn't read the book, I'm going to play another clip from Celebrity Memoir Book Club and let their commentary speak for us all. On their honeymoon, he says to her, I can give you a lot of material things, but I'm not going to give them to you all at once because too much too soon is not a good thing either. That's very weird. Yeah, very much was this relationship of, I don't think she knows it, but she clearly had father issues from being abandoned by her father. Now she was dating this man or married to this man who is 12 years older than her, and acting like her father. That is a very bizarre thing to be worried about spoiling your wife. Robert also encouraged Chris to quit her job as a flight attendant, leaving her with no income outside of their marriage. This is what I'm talking about when I say that gold diggers often don't really hold the power in their relationships and therefore shouldn't be shamed as if they're villains. Being the housewife to a rich man sounds super cool and fun until you realize you're not actually happy in your relationship and can't move on because you're not an economically established adult independent of your marriage. And that's kind of what happened to Kris Jenner. After 13 years of marriage and the birth of four children, those would be in order from oldest to youngest, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and Rob Jr., 
Chris and Rob Sr. got divorced when Chris's affair with her tennis instructor Todd was discovered. Can I just say, an affair with your tennis instructor is like the most rich person thing ever? It's like cliche. I feel like women only get tennis instructors specifically to cheat on their husbands. No one needs to learn how to play tennis that bad. Anyway, with the separation and divorce from Robert, Chris had essentially nothing. Robert froze all of her credit cards, which he had been paying, and that is kind of fair considering she cheated on him and betrayed their relationship, but also he was the reason that she quit her job as a flight attendant. He was the reason she didn't have income outside of their relationship. Chris later told the Wall Street Journal that during her first marriage, she never had to pay bills on her own. So when she got a divorce, she was left with basically nothing. Luckily, Chris found a new husband to build her preferred lifestyle with. Now, throughout this podcast, when I talk about Chris's second husband, I'm not going to dead name her since I'm making this in the time after Caitlyn's coming out as a trans woman, but since Caitlyn was a public figure before her transition, a lot of the audio clips I'm going to use will be referring to Kate with the name she was going by at the time. And any future quotes I'll read that use her dead name will be read as they were written to keep consistent with the public narrative at the time. I know that Caitlin has said in the past that she doesn't really mind people using her dead name or using different pronouns when talking about her public image prior to her transition, so I don't really feel bad about that but I just want to acknowledge that to not make it seem like I'm ignoring the issue. When Chris met her though, Caitlin was well known as the winner of the Men's Decathlon event at the 1976 Summer Olympics. Jenner begins to chase after the lead. Though Litvinenko is out of the running for a medal, he picks up his pace as Jenner closes and the final few yards become an exhibition of pride and pure competitive spirit. I'm not a sports person, but from what I understand, this was a big deal, especially since Caitlyn's strongest competitor was a man named Mikola Avilov. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I couldn't find any footage that would say his name, so I'm kind of just flying blind. But Mikula had won the same event in 1972 and represented the Soviet Union, a nation we were kind of beefing with in that era. With her win, Caitlyn became an American folk hero whose celebrity skyrocketed, starring in movies, becoming a co-host for a short-lived daytime talk show, and taking on a shitload of endorsement deals. Jenner's really piling up the points. He sprints through the hurdles for 866. He hurls the javelin for 862. He's done it! Bruce 
Jenner set a new world decathlon record. I spent a good part of my life getting ready for that day. I worked out a lot, ate a lot of Wheaties. Because a complete breakfast with Wheaties is good tasting and good for you. Hi, I'm Bruce Jenner. Will the U.S. archery team bring home the gold? Soul 88 America's Hopefuls is brought to you by Advil, advanced medicine for pain. Bruce Jenner shoes. Don't buy them because my name's on them. Buy them because they're Buster Brown that need his shoes on the blocks. I never thought I would experience the challenge of the decathlon again. I was wrong. For your Atari 2600, the Activision decathlon, let the games begin. By the time Chris met her, Kate's fame was dwindling. She hadn't quite levied her star power far past her Olympic win, but Chris saw her potential as a media figure and public speaker. This is where Chris began her career as a manager, telling the Never Before podcast that Caitlin had only $200 in her bank account when they met. I've always looked at things like, we're just going to figure this out. Like, I don't stop and think about, what's the plan here? You know, I just went for it. And I realized after we got married and I had a limited amount of money and I said, okay, we're going to move into this house and we're going to, you know, work hard. So my assistant and I literally decided he didn't have a business card. He didn't have a bio. He didn't have a press, nothing. And I remember thinking, okay, Lisa, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get every fabulous picture of Bruce Jenner. We're going to do a photo shoot. And I had a friend take photos. Yeah. And I had another woman I know make a sizzle reel that we could use as a intro to his speech. I sort of produced You were producing this. already. Yes. So I think I spent my last dime, I'm not even kidding, making these beautiful, glossy press kit folders and took every great article that had ever been in Sports Illustrated and, you know, any, you know, really beautiful magazine. And I started making copies. So I bought a big, I convinced somebody to give me this big, huge Xerox, like office printer, that <laughs> copy machine. And I think I, I asked Xerox to do it for me. And I said, you know, when the Olympics roll around, I won't forget you. Night after night until, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, we made copies. We put together like 7,000 press kits and we mailed them to every speaker's bureau in the United States. Chris wasn't always just behind the scenes, though. Once she started helping Caitlin expand her public image, the two became like a C-list power couple. Okay, kids. See, I'm, I'm interrupting the Jenners. This is Bruce Jenner and, well, his lovely wife, Chris. <laughs> and you do Thank look you, gorgeous. Now, first of all, Chris was featured in multiple workout videos and infomercials with her then husband, helping to get her name into the public alongside her partner. Back in Barcelona, we have our own stair climber plus success story to tell you about. My wife, Chris, was a new stair climber at the time of our last program. And this is Chris today. Lighter, trimmer, and might add, very toned. Honey, tell the folks how you did it. Well, I knew we were coming to Barcelona, and I wanted to look my best. So I ate a sensible diet, and worked out on the stepper at home or in the office for about 15 minutes a day. Now, there are a lot of unauthorized biographies written about the Kardashians, and not all of them, or maybe even most of them, are super reliable. But every once in a while, throughout this series, I might mention the claims in one, 
which I'm mostly doing because this podcast isn't really an investigative, journalistic endeavor. It's more of a look at public narratives and what we can gather from those. So occasionally, unfounded information is going to be significant for exploring the public narrative. But I'll do my best to clarify when certain rumors are unconfirmed. Like this one from the Dirty Sexy Money, the unauthorized biography of Kris Jenner by Kathy Griffin and Dylan Howard. In this book, the authors claim, and it doesn't sound unlikely to me, that in early 1994, Chris had signed a deal to launch her own TV network called Fit, which would host 24-hour fitness programming. Chris had some alleged business partners, of course, one being her husband, unsurprisingly, and one being theirs and her ex-husband's mutual friend, O.J. Simpson. If you have even a minimal amount of knowledge of 1990s pop culture, you can probably guess why this deal fell through. But let's back up a little bit. The popularity of American football goes on and on. Today it even has its own TV series starring one of the greatest running backs of all time, O.J. Simpson. Like Caitlin, O.J. began his life in the spotlight as an athlete, becoming a running back for the NFL in 1969. Now, I know nothing about football, including what a running back is, but I understand that O.J. was good at it. According to his Wikipedia page, he was the only player to rush for over 2,000 yards in the 14-game regular season NFL format. If you understand what that means, you can email me and tell me if it's a big deal. Or honestly don't because I don't care. Anyway, once OJ left the NFL, he transitioned his career into working within the general entertainment industry. I consider myself first and foremost a businessman. I have a number of businesses, a number of companies that I run that fortunately we've been very successful. And I like business. And, uh, you know, because of doing a few shows, becoming friends with Irwin Allen and the late Quinn Martin, uh, Lee Strasberg, I got involved in the film business just from my relationship with them. And I enjoyed it. OJ's talents as a sports star are lost on me, but I definitely can recognize his skills as an actor and public speaker. He had a sort of superficial charm that at least seemed genuine. Maybe I'm looking at everything with the hindsight of later events, but clips of OJ creep me out for that charm specifically. There's something unnerving about someone, especially a rich someone, with an unwavering ability to make every interaction they enter into feel engaging and warm. People that smile a lot or make the perfect amount of eye contact every time they talk, I generally do not trust which is why Elijah Wood has fooled everybody else in the world except for me. 
But throughout his career, acting took on an increasing importance for O.J. professionally. His final film was a 1994 made-for-TV movie called Frogmen, which is still unaired to this day because of... an incident? O.J. Simpson, now formally charged with a pair of gruesome murders, is a fugitive tonight. There's a manhunt underway in Southern California, and O.J. Simpson, the 46-year-old former football star, one of America's best-known personalities, faces the possibility of the death penalty. O.J. met Robert Kardashian and became besties with him in 1967. And Chris became close friends with O.J.'s partner, whom he married in 1985, named Nicole Brown. To this day, Chris says she didn't know about O.J.'s abuse of Nicole until after her death, or at least she didn't realize the severity of it, but it was severe. I'm going to play a 911 call from Nicole on a night in which OJ was lashing out at her. It is pretty intense, so if you don't want to hear it, skip forward about a minute. Can you get someone over here now to 325 Gretna Green? He's back. Please. Okay, what does he look like? He's OJ Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just send somebody okay. over here? Okay, what is he doing there? He just drove up again. He just drove somebody up over. Okay, wait a minute. What kind of car is he in? He's in a white Bronco, but first of all, he broke the back door down to get in. Before. Okay, wait a minute. What's your name? Nicole Simpson. Okay, is he the sportscaster or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Thank what is, you. Wait a minute. We're sending the police. What is he doing? Is he threatening you? I'm going nuts. Okay. Has he threatened you in any way, or or is he just harassing you? You're gonna hear him in a minute. He's about to come in again. Okay. Just stay on the line. I don't want to stay on the line. He's gonna beat the shit. Wait a minute. Wait. Just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there. Okay. Okay, Nicole. Uh huh. Just a moment. Does he have any weapons? I don't know. Okay. He went home and now he's back. Okay. My kids are up there sleeping and I don't want anything to happen. That recording was from October of 1993 and it was the second 911 call Nicole had made that night to report the abuse that OJ had inflicted upon her. She'd reported her abuse to police many times throughout their marriage, but O.J. was only arrested once after an incident on New Year's Day in 1989. He pleaded no contest to spousal abuse, but Nicole's own parents encouraged her to drop the charges and reconcile with O.J. since he was helping their family financially. When Nicole and O.J. split, Chris was hopeful that the two of them would follow in hers and Robert's footsteps with a mostly amicable divorce, but that did not happen. On June 12, 1994, Nicole and her friend Ronald Goldman were murdered by a gruesome knife attack outside of Nicole's home. O.J. was later acquitted for the murders, but a civil lawsuit in 1997 contradictorily found him responsible for the victim's deaths. No matter what any of the courts say, though, let's be clear. O.J. did do it. There's a fuck ton of evidence against him, including DNA evidence and a literal blood trail going from the crime scene 
to OJ's Bronco, and all the way to his bedroom at his private residence. And how OJ killed these two was absolutely disgusting. Like, all cold-blooded murders are bad, but until recently, I honestly didn't realize how gruesome these deaths were, and I'm going to go over it quickly, so skip ahead if it disturbs you too much. But I want to be really clear about what this man did, because this wasn't a crime of passion or the result of a brief violent outburst. This was premeditated, at least for Nicole, whom OJ stabbed multiple times in the head and the neck. Ron Goldman was a close friend of Nicole's and a waiter at a restaurant Nicole had dined at earlier in the evening. When she left her glasses at the restaurant, Ron put them in an envelope with the intention of returning them to her on his way home from work, but he came upon OJ's attack of Nicole instead. In order to ensure there were no witnesses for Nicole's death, Ron was attacked and killed as well. From the investigation, it then seems like OJ returned to Nicole's already dead body after killing Ron, stepped on her back, and lifted her head to slit her throat further. When investigators arrived, Nicole's head was barely attached to her body, and the theory is that OJ's original plan for the murder was to stage a drug deal gone wrong, specifically a deal with Colombian drug lords who were reported to utilize a form of post-mortem utilization during the La Valencia period called a Colombian necktie, where they would pull the victim's tongue through a deep cut in their neck and leave it dangling, kind of like a necktie. OJ was trying to portray Nicole as the victim of vengeful drug dealers due to her closeness with her friend Faye Resnick, who'd been a known cocaine user and had failed to pay for her drugs in the past. Nicole was therefore supposedly a casualty in some Colombian drug lord's retaliation against Faye. But let's be clear, the era in which Colombian neckties were ever known to be a thing ended in 1958, a whole 36 years before Nicole's death. And there have never been any reports of this kind of mutilization happening on U.S. land. So even if OJ's plan had been executed with 100% success, and there wasn't a trail of blood leading back to his bed, the idea he had come up with was preposterous to begin with. But OJ had been caught abusing Nicole publicly for years, and every time he got away with it. Even when the civil trial found him responsible for the two deaths, he never paid the full amount he was ordered to pay. You'd think, after literally getting away with murder, that you'd chill on the crimes, but not for OJ. In 2007, he was arrested again and charged with armed robbery and kidnapping, this time being sentenced to 33 years in prison with a 9-year minimum without parole. 
Nine years later, he got parole and was released from prison in October of 2017. Just last December, he was granted early release from his parole, meaning that after all that, plus a bunch of unpaid taxes, other allegations of battery, pirating DirecTV satellite signal, and being arrested in Florida for failing to abide with proper boating regulations, OJ walks around completely free to this day, despite constantly behaving with an absurd amount of recklessness, to put it lightly. The point is, OJ Simpson is a murderer and an evil man, but Robert Kardashian was convinced of his friend's innocence for at least a portion of the criminal trial against OJ that started in 1995. Though Robert hadn't been a practicing attorney for about 20 years, he renewed his license to become a part of OJ's defense team. With everything we've discussed so far, I know most of it doesn't paint Robert Kardashian in the best light. Being loyal to your friend is good most of the time, but generally not when they brutally murdered their own ex-wife out of pure rage. If OJ's defense team had a moral backbone, though, Robert Kardashian was it. He wasn't trying to get OJ off for something he thought he might have done. He was steadfast in his belief that his friend was innocent, telling Barbara Walters, I looked him straight in the eyes. He was in jail, and I said, OJ, I'm going to ask you a question. And he said, what? And I said, did you commit these crimes? And he said, I did not. I am innocent. I did not commit these crimes. And he started to weep. And Barbara, I have been in business with this man. I have known this man for 25 years. He has never lied to me, and I believed him, and that's why I've been by his side throughout this whole ordeal. As the trial went on, his suspicions of OJ seemingly increased. If you watch footage from the trial's verdict, OJ's defense team is outwardly celebratory of his win, except for Robert, who looks shocked, confused, and almost a little upset, like he might have been regretting his involvement in the case. This is from a later interview with Barbara Walters. I asked you if you yourself doubt O.J. Simpson's innocence. I have doubts. Why? The blood evidence is the biggest thorn in my side. That causes me the greatest problems. Uh, so I, I struggle with the blood evidence. What is your relationship today with O.J. Simpson? The relationship is not the same as it once was, nor will it ever be. Why not? Because I have doubts. Throughout the trial, though, Robert was Team OJ. Chris and Caitlin were decidedly not. Despite having a mostly amicable divorce, Chris and Robert were on opposite sides of the courtroom. While Robert was working on OJ's defense team, Chris was working closely with the prosecution. At one point, she was set to be called as a witness, but the prosecutors changed their strategy Still, Chris believed that O.J. was guilty and was understandably upset that her ex-husband was defending her best friend's killer. 
The Kardashian children were caught in the middle, but the hurt Chris caused her family with her affair and split from Robert still affected her daughter's view of their mother. They told Oprah, Always in life, we always protected our dad because we felt bad for him because he didn't want the divorce. We mm. knew it was my mom's fault and we were really well aware. So, Were you aware of the affair at the time? Mm -hmm. Yes. You were? Courtney and I, for sure, we were really aware. I wasn't. Um, I still wasn't aware until recently, to be honest. Really? You weren't yeah. aware until when? The book? Honestly, I swear. What? But you were really angry about it. I think to myself, like I'm trying to put myself in her shoes, and I'm like, I would never do that to mm -hmm. my family. At one point, they even entered the courtroom with their father and sat on the opposite side of their mother. I hate to parent shame because I don't have any kids, but I do have to say, I think it's a little inappropriate to bring your children in to watch a murder trial that involves people they intimately know on both sides. But whatever. It's a good example, at least, of how central the Kardashians were on this case. They weren't just the children of a man who happened to represent OJ, they called OJ Uncle OJ and Nicole Auntie Nicole, so their family's closeness with the two parties was already likely damaging to them emotionally. Then, both sides were taking up refuge in their two homes. Here's Kim and Chloe on The Howard Stern Show. Courtney and I just believed everything that my dad would do. Right. We were such daddy's girls because we felt like you know, my mom had remarried so fast and it kind of broke my dad's heart and she moved on. So we just sided with my dad no matter what it was. Right. So at the beginning, my dad definitely did believe in OJ, Did couldn't believe that his best friend would do that. Um, so we always were at my dad's house and there was, you know, Bob Shapiro and Johnny Cochran and they're having all these meetings and we'd go there. You and would then, go to the meetings and OJ would be well, there Well, it was and at stuff? my dad's house. So okay. everyone was like just the there Bronco trying to chase happened out. from my dad's house. Like all that stuff, like it was, we were very much in the heart of it all. Was O.J. at your house a lot, even like planning his defense, or was well, he in OJ jail? Was in he was yeah. in custody, right? Yeah, they didn't yeah. release him, right? Yeah. Okay, but so yeah. Before he was, he was staying at our house, and yeah. then we'd go right. to my mom's house where Faye Resnick was living, and she was really close to the Brown family. So we'd hear one thing, and you know, it was uh, very divided. OJ, and then going to my dad's house, and it was all pro O.J., and we're like, wait, what do we believe? And so we right, because your mom's probably sitting there going, "That's my best friend, and O.J. killed my best friend, and now my ex-husband's." defending him and and you guys are caught in the middle in a, in a sense during this whole thing saying gee who's right who's I know telling for, the truth I know for us as kids it was very hard like f like for me personally I just felt like we, if I was at my mom's I couldn't really talk about my dad if I was at my dad's I couldn't talk about my mom we'll talk about the infamous Bronco chase that Chloe mentioned in a second but in addition to that it's worth mentioning that OJ apparently threatened suicide in Chloe's bedroom which Robert talked about with Barbara Walters. In the book it says you said to him, you can't kill yourself, this is my daughter's room. I said, OJ, I could never walk in this room. My daughter couldn't sleep in this bed. She'd know what happened here. Robert also read OJ's suicide note outside of his home. I think of my life and feel I've done most of the right things. So why do I end up like this? I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. And all the kids were there for the media coverage in public backlash, as Chloe spoke about on The Late Late Show with James Corden. 
The other guest you'll hear, by the way, is Josh Dumel. I was a junior in college, mm. and I literally skipped class to watch that. I mean, it was that to watch the deal. trial. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was. was it, it I was. Is... I was ten, and they like the teachers would like close down the classroom. We'd all be watching it on TV, and I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, like that's how. What really? It was. But, that, yeah. but that feels so odd for that to for for you in that situation. Mm -hmm. Must have been incredibly. Oh, it was strange. It was, so crazy but i mean people were really cruel during that time like they used to key guilty on my dad's car like when we were at church we would walk out like it was horrible at that time they were incredibly mean and cruel so where did the kardashians stand on the trial today let's play another talk show clip and see if dr phil can get to the bottom of it have you all come to the opinion that he is guilty that he did do it do you still think that the verdict was correct i mean where do you all stand on it now it's so funny. People ask me that all the time, and I just really try and like block it out. I don't really, I don't, I don't think I've ever answered it. I don't. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I think that was the biggest struggle within our family, as besides the divorce between my parents, is the biggest separation that my family's had. So why even kind of bring it up? Everyone has their own opinion, and everyone we respect everyone's opinions. In some ways, I understand this stance feeling like you're being asked to pick sides on such a serious and traumatizing event when you're a child could absolutely make you not want to comment on the case in your adult life. But the Kardashian family has talked about this trial publicly on multiple occasions. They have a right to sense their experience with it did affect them, but I don't think you can simultaneously say, I want to stay out of it, while also regularly talking about it on TV. The other thing they often say to avoid picking a side is that they want to respect OJ's children by not vilifying one of their parents in the media. Again, I kind of get that. The situation was certainly always hard for OJ's kids to go through, even the ones that weren't also Nicole's. But to be honest, at some point I think there are circumstances in which it's okay to tell someone that they probably should keep their distance from a parent when one of those parents brutally murdered the other in cold blood and shows no remorse from it, that is one of those circumstances. I don't personally think it's helpful to OJ's kids to try to shield them from the fact that their father is an immoral and dangerous man. The thing I want to highlight here, though, is the Kardashian family's ability to separate themselves from the moral implications of their actions. As reality stars, they make a living out of being themselves, but refrain from ever expressing beliefs that could be controversial. None of them are particularly political, for one thing. Like with the OJ trial, they want to respect everyone's opinions, meaning really that they don't want to isolate any members of their audience by ever offering a firm stance about anything. And with the OJ trial, they have enough of a distance from the actual crime at the center of the story, so it's less of a moral transgression for them to merely not place blame on the obvious killer and abuser. Most of the Kardashians' moral failings work with this kind of indirectness. 
We'll discuss them as they come up, but every time there's a substantial controversy with the family, it's something vague like accusations of cultural appropriation where even people within the appropriated culture don't necessarily all agree on what acts constitute as harmful. So it's harder to specifically demonize the Kardashians for that even when they are in the wrong. But in situations where the victims of a scandal are extremely clear, like times when Kardashian brands have ripped off the work of smaller businesses, or when their companies have outsourced jobs to places with poor working conditions and extremely low pay, the family has a degree of separation from the injury they've indirectly caused. It probably wasn't the Kardashians themselves hand-selecting the designs they were gonna steal for their brands, and they definitely weren't the ones deciding the specific wages or working conditions inside the sweatshops their brands hired. Sure, they have the responsibility of making sure that everything with their name attached to it is run ethically and overseen properly, but they as individuals are not directly causing people harm, they're just letting other people get away with harming people on their company's behalf. The effect is pretty much the same, but I'm sure to the Kardashians it doesn't feel quite as dirty because there's an element of depersonalization, which they practice with their public discussions about the O.J. Simpson trial. O.J.'s a bad dude who never fully dealt with the consequences of his absolutely evil actions, but the Kardashians never killed anyone. So why should they task themselves with condemning O.J.'s actions even while publicizing their connections to his case? I don't think that this makes the Kardashians inherently bad people but it does reveal something about their sense of moral responsibility, especially in relation to their public image. While the OJ case was hard on their family, the trial also acted as a productive lesson in publicity. To some degree, we can think about the trial as a catalyst for America's current obsession with reality TV. Reality shows obviously existed prior to the murder, as did the 24-hour news cycle with CNN being over a decade old at the time, but primetime entertainment was still dominantly made up of scripted television. The trial in full was televised, but even before that the news cycle was enraptured with the murders due to OJ's status as both a suspect and A-list celebrity. His behavior increased the drama around the case when he resisted arrest and cooperation with the police by fleeing Rob Kardashian's home in his white Bronco holding a gun to his head and threatening to shoot himself while his friend Al Cowlings drove the vehicle. The entire chase was captured on live TV in real time with helicopter footage. We are looking at live pictures of Interstate 5 in Los Angeles. We believe that that white vehicle, which is being trailed by a phalanx of 
California Highway Patrol cars and helicopters belong to Al Collins, who disappeared with O.J. Simpson earlier today, shortly after Mr. Simpson was informed that he was going to be formally charged with the murder of his wife and the young man who was with her at the time. It is the latest bizarre development in a string of bizarre and shocking developments that have been going on all day long. The chase has been frequently referenced in pop culture ever since, like in an episode of Seinfeld. Hey, listen to this. They issued a warrant for Gendison's arrest. He escaped, and the police have just spotted him on the New Jersey Turnpike. As you can see, Bronco. The police have cleared the highway traffic in front of them, but they are keeping their distance. They don't want this situation to escalate. Or the animated classic Shrek 2. We got a white Bronco heading east into the forest, requesting backup. It's time for the men in steel to teach these mad cat mammals their devil may bear attitudes just won't fly. 95 million people watched some part of the white Bronco chase on live TV which was about one-third of the country and five million more people than watched that year's Super Bowl. Especially for an event that wasn't planned in advance, that's an absurd amount of people. For the trial itself, 150 million people, which was 57% of the country, watched the verdict on October 3rd, 1995. During the trial, the defense team had a keen awareness of the presence of cameras in the courtroom and played to the audience to get popular support. The lead defense attorney, Johnny Cochran, already had experience working in a highly publicized case with a celebrity defendant, having represented Michael Jackson after Jackson was accused of sexual abuse of a minor in 1993 just two years prior to O.J.'s trial. He would later represent Sean Diddy Combs, who was acquitted on accusations involving bribery and stolen weapons in 2001. R. Kelly reportedly also wanted Cochran to represent him in one of his cases, I'm not sure exactly which one, but Cochran declined as he had retired by that time. Johnny Cochran was incredibly animated and charismatic in his performance as O.J.'s attorney. His infamous line from the trial revolved around a glove found at the crime scene, saying, It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. To give you an idea of how far this piece of history has infested pop culture, guess where I heard this line for the first time? The Disney Channel children's show, That's So Raven. This is the only way to prove that you are not, in fact, the Pink Bandit. Because if the dress does not fit, you must acquit. Let me reiterate that for you one more time. If the dress ain't the right size, you must, sir, what, 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 must apologize. What? The logic behind this argument as a piece of evidence was absurd, but it didn't matter. It played well on TV with its memorable and catchy line from Cochran performed like a true entertainer, and though the prosecutor successfully disproved Cochran's theory, they couldn't destroy the memory of his infamous monologue in the public consciousness, as prosecutor Marcia Clark discussed on The Late Show with Seth Meyers. 
uh, it really was a television moment. It mm -hmm. seemed very scripted, like it shouldn't have happened in real life. Yeah. And he's pulling on the gloves, and he knows how to, because uh, that's the first thing they teach you in acting class, how to not make gloves fit. Have mm -hmm. you ever tried to put gloves on somebody who doesn't want to put them on? Yeah. It's so easy. It's so, do this, do this, you know, <laughs> right. a million. And then he's wearing latex underneath, yeah. and the gloves had been frozen and unfrozen, not good for leather. So, I mean, it was all very predictable. At the same time, I thought, well, we can, we can handle this. Mm -hmm. We have experts to talk about all these things. Not only that, but I'll get a pair of the right gloves that, are, that haven't been frozen and unfrozen and have him put them on without latex. And we did. Yeah. And we had, him put, we had the expert testify. We had him put on a pair of identical gloves, and they fit. But that but nobody, nobody cared. cared. Johnny Cochran was one of the major characters that arose as a public figure during the trial, but he wasn't the only one. Kato Kalin, an aspiring actor who'd been staying in O.J.'s guest home at the time of the murder, was called to testify as a witness, and his time on the witness stand gained attention due to his, at times, amusing testimony and almost casual demeanor. Did you drive forward and get the food at the second window? Yes, we did. Did he take that food? Yes. What did he do with it? He took the food. Yes. Where did he put it? He, the bag was in his lap, then he gave me the, my stuff, my food. And what did he do with his food? He ate it. Did you eat your food as well? No, I had a few french fries, but that was it. I didn't eat the main course. So... <laughs> Larry King would later call Cato Kalin one of the first reality stars. Here's a clip of an interview the two of them did together. Why do you think this case remains so indelible? I, I think it's because it was uh, televised. It was celebrity. And you had uh, uh, a black man and a white woman, and it was a uh, sort of first of its kind. And uh, being televised, people, uh, a lot of the lawyers worked the camera. They knew uh -huh. the audience wasn't just the jury. They knew they had to work America. And then, uh, then the birth of really the birth of tabloid TV with the current affairs, hard copies, and it was almost impossible to stay away from not hearing something about the case. And as I said, you were his first, I think you were the first reality star of television. Yeah, you, you actually coined that term for yeah. me, and that was before uh, any other reality shows because people saw it, I think people saw the trial a lot as a soap opera, and I was just Cato the character. I wasn't the real Brian Cato Cato. People saw me as, oh, it's that that guy. A survey reported that 74% of Americans could identify Cato Kalin during the trial, compared to only 25% who could identify then-Vice President Al Gore. Cato would go on to do traditional reality TV later on shows like Celebrity Boot Camp, Celebrity Big Brother, and Gimme My Reality Show, a Fox reality competition series where contestants competed to get another reality show. Due to his introduction to the world as someone living on OJ's property, though, after he had already rented a guest house for a time on Nicole Brown's property, Cato was cast in the media as a sort of freeloader bonehead, like in this depiction of Cato on SNL. Cato spent four days on the witness stand this week, making it the longest job he has ever held. <laughs> and now let's take a look at some of his testimony from earlier this week. Uh, Mr. Kalen, are you nervous? Uh, a little, yes. Uh, please tell the court, Mr. Kalen, what it is you do for a living. 
I'm an actor. Oh, really? An actor. It also says here you can do a dog barking. Uh, do you think this is something the court needs to hear? Yes, I do. <clears throat> <laughs> so, then, Mr. Kalen, you're saying that was the sound Nicole Simpson's dog made the night of the murders? No, that's a small dog. I, I can't do big dogs. Mr. Kalen, you're, you're useless. Yes, I am. If you're familiar, you can think of Cato as a tabloid version of Lisa's house guest Cedric in the first season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And speaking of the first season of The Real Housewives... I recognize during the dinner, it was the hair. I think it's the extensions and the blown up fake lips. But, um, and then I realized, oh my God, that's who it is. It's Faye Resnick, the morally corrupt Faye Resnick. First off, I am a ride-or-die Faye Resnick stan. That clip you heard from The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills came from a particularly tense dinner scene involving Faye, who was an occasional guest star on the show, where housewife Camille took some cheap shots at her, slut-shaming her for appearing in Playboy after her friend Nicole's death. To be clear, the photo shoot happened like two or three years after the murder. I don't know how long is customarily appropriate to pose nude after your friend was killed, but I think two years will suffice. The reason most people distrusted Faye during the trial, though, was because of a book she had written entitled Nicole Brown Simpson, The Private Diary of a Life Interrupted, co-written by a gossip columnist from the National Enquirer. The book was published only four months after the murder, before the trial had even started, and was widely criticized for its contents. Now, I had heard before that the book was filled with extremely salacious stories of Nicole's sex life prior to her death, Many people claim that much of the book's content was made up, but after reading the book myself, or actually listening to it, it's only like two hours on Audible, I get why some people were put off by it, but I can't say I found anything in it all that scandalous, nor do I personally believe any of it was untrue. It's honestly too tame for me to think that it's fiction. The book goes into discussions of Nicole's sex life, and there are things that I think could have been handled with more tact and respect to the fact that Nicole couldn't consent to many of those things being made public. But when Faye writes about Nicole's relationships with men, it's always followed up by stories of OJ's wild jealousy and rage. Nothing she says is irrelevant to depicting OJ's abuse, except for maybe the story of Faye and Nicole's brief romantic encounter with one another. But I think that had more to do with Faye expressing her closeness to Nicole, which is still relevant to her own personal grief. Faye has admitted that she would write the book differently and be more careful with the details if she were to do it again, but she explained in an interview with Larry King that she felt pressured to release the book as soon as possible in hopes that shedding light on OJ's abuse of Nicole before the trial would help the public understand the context of the murders. 
proving that OJ had motive to kill his wife. Faye was relentlessly slut-shamed and vilified in the media. As you might remember, OJ was trying to frame her drug problem as the indirect cause for Nicole's death, but Faye was one of the few and first people to emphasize the domestic abuse and domestic violence aspects of this case. I wrote it for a very specific reason. If I wrote a book that would just memorialize Nicole, nobody would believe me. If I wrote a book that memorialized um, or, or just showed her the good side of Nicole, once again, they wouldn't believe me. Nor would it make a difference in, as far as domestic violence. Most of the women who get beaten up feel that it's their fault because they have done certain, um, they've done things that they're embarrassed of and they, the man makes them feel that it's their fault. So I had to show that it's not a woman's fault for being beaten up. No matter what they've done, they do not deserve to be beaten up or killed. Despite her vilification in the media, to me Faye Resnick came out of the trial acting more like a hero than many of the other characters in this story. But decades later, she's still referred to as morally corrupt just for having a messy reaction to a very messy situation. Faye is still friends with Kris Jenner and made occasional appearances on Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which I'll be sure to point out as we discuss the show, and their continued camaraderie makes sense, not only because they dealt with the traumatic loss of their friend together, but because they both survived the media firestorm that accompanied it. Chris, of course, has learned to profit from that firestorm, and there are a few lessons we can see the Kardashians learning from the experience of this trial. The first one I'm going to offer is debatable, but I want to put it out there anyway. One of the major reasons OJ was found not guilty in his criminal trial is that his defense team decided to weaponize contentious race relations in the country, especially the distrust many in the black community had for the LAPD, who charged OJ, a black man, with the crime. I don't think I'll likely recommend much content from ESPN on this podcast in the future, but their docuseries OJ Made in America really effectively highlights the socio-political climate at the time of the trial, with the murders happening roughly around the time of the Rodney King beatings and subsequent protests against police brutality and racial discrimination within the justice system. Okay, I'm here outside Parker Center where protesters have descended on the place. It was during the Chief Gates news conference. They got here. It's been growing steadily. With me is one of the protesters. He cannot give his name, but tell me what exactly, how do you feel about all of this? I feel that it's a great travesty of justice. I feel that the jury in Simi Valley gave the okay to continue to abuse and oppress and suppress black people in this country. I feel that there is an undercurrent of racism and that the system is rotten to the core. And I, I couldn't sit in my home and just watch it on television. I had to come here and let my voice be heard. The defense team used valid distrust of the LAPD to portray O.J. Simpson as the victim of a conspiracy by the police and court, pointing the jury's attention to flaws in the initial investigation to imply planted evidence. 
It didn't help prosecutors that OJ's attorneys were able to obtain tapes of an LAPD officer working on the case using the N-word implying they had planted evidence against a suspect in the past and making some absurdly racist, homophobic, and misogynistic statements. If he sees an African-American with a white woman, he would stop them. If he didn't have a reason, he'd find one or make up one. This man will lie to set you up. That's what he's saying there. He will do anything to set you up because of the hatred he has in his heart. A racist is somebody who has power over you, who can do something to you. People could have views, but keep them to themselves. But when they have power over you, that's when racism becomes insidious. That's what we're talking about here. He has power. A police officer in the street, a patrol officer, is the single most powerful figure in the criminal justice system. He can take your life. Unlike the Supreme Court, you don't have to go through all these appeals. He can do it right there and justify it. And that's why, that's why this has to be rooted out in the LAPD and every place else. Make up a reason. Because he made a judgment. That's what happened in this case. They made a judgment. Everything else after that was going to point toward O.J. Simpson. They didn't want to look at anybody else. There was undeniable evidence of O.J.'s guilt that couldn't be discounted and was never disproven by anything the defense argued. But let's still acknowledge that it wasn't really ridiculous to think that members of the LAPD would plant evidence specifically to frame a black man of a crime against a white woman. And the defense used that to their advantage. At the beginning of the trial, two-thirds of white Americans thought OJ was guilty, while two-thirds of black Americans thought he was innocent. By the end of the trial, after all the evidence had been presented and everyone's testimonies were heard, you'd expect the racial divide to reduce as more people took in all the information, but the gap widened. Around the verdict, 75% of white Americans thought OJ was guilty, compared to 75% of black Americans thinking he was innocent. So what does this have to do with the Kardashians? There's a pretty nuanced conversation regarding the Kardashian family surrounding their appropriation of and proximity to black culture. As a white girl, I am not really in a position to lead that conversation, but we can acknowledge some mirrored elements here of the O.J. Simpson trial and the Kardashians' public image. Despite the focus on potential racial discrimination O.J. faced at the hands of the LAPD, O.J.'s previous image in the media was kind of whitewashed. O.J. like... I'm not black, I'm OJ. Okay. A lot of people before the murder, including Nicole Brown, according to Faye Resnick, whom I trust with my life, expressed frustration with how OJ distanced himself from black culture. He didn't seem to concern himself too much with issues of racial justice and anti-blackness prior to his trial. 
and a lot of OJ's celebrity image was based around his willingness to conform to white people's idealized image of a successful black man, divorcing himself from the elements of black culture that made white America uncomfortable. Contrast that to the Kardashians. We'll talk more about their racial and ethnic identities in the next episode, but for now, as we're discussing them, the Kardashians are essentially white women with white privilege, yet they frequently appropriate elements of black culture to set themselves apart from their lily-white counterparts like Paris Hilton, or to try to make themselves more marketable to a racially diverse audience, which is why they're often accused of blackfishing, meaning they present themselves with aesthetics of the black community without they themselves being black or advocating for causes of racial justice, at least not in ways that might alienate their white audience. This is Lonnie Love talking about blackfishing on the real. We have yes. a problem with people acknowledging certain people and certain things. Right. And the thing is, black women for so long were ridiculed for having big butts, for having, you know, voluptuous shapes, full lips. And it seems like other cultures and other races, if I'm honest, are profiting off of it. And sisters are still sitting over here going, but what about us? Right. That's, that's the only thing. That's the only problem. Well, that's a big problem. The family has appropriated cultures beyond just the Black American community, but their proximity to Blackness is central to their image. Even initially with Kim's arrival into the celebrity world, after which she was regularly given publicity and celebrated for her big ass. The size of Kim's butt wasn't monumental relative to the greater population. Even in celebrity media, J-Lo, a Latina, was known for curvy features prior to Kim, and Destiny's Child, a group made exclusively of black women, had already released Bootylicious years before Kim stepped onto the scene. We all know the 90s classic Baby Got Back, and the intro to that song blatantly mentions big butts as being associated with black women. She looks like a total prostitute, okay? I mean, her butt is just so big. I can't believe it's just so round. It's like out there. I mean, gross. Before Kim became a household name, flat asses were prevalent in media depictions of women, specifically white women who are often central to American beauty standards. Once Kim's celebrity became a mainstream success, a white girl got the credit for changing those beauty standards despite all the women of color who came before her in the booty revolution. OJ weaponized the black struggle when it could be used to his advantage. Did the Kardashians consciously or subconsciously pick up on the tactic of using proximity to blackness when convenient to improve their own image? I don't know, and I don't want to look at it too cynically, but there is some thematic foreshadowing with how O.J. Simpson won his case and how the Kardashians eventually built their own careers. 
There's also some more foreshadowing with this case in relation to Kim Kardashian's life specifically. This one I think is more coincidental, but I like to think of celebrity narratives in terms of what the stories would look like if they were fully scripted portrayals rather than randomly unfolding events. And if the Kardashians' lives were a movie, I would absolutely infer some writer intent between what happened with O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown and what's currently happening with Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. I'm not saying that to imply Kanye West is capable of murder or any kind of violence, especially against a loved one. Based on what I know of him and O.J. Simpson, Kanye does not have these psychopathic tendencies I think we can see in OJ, but he did exhibit behavior toward Kim in the past that was at the very least toxic, bordering on emotionally abusive or manipulative. With their separation, Kanye's public behavior has become increasingly erratic. He clearly doesn't want Kim to move on and acted in ways that were extremely controlling of her and inappropriate for an ex-partner, like sending Kim exorbitant gifts to coerce her into taking him back, moving into the house directly across the street from her, impeding on private events Kim threw without him, encouraging fans to harass her new boyfriend, and publicly chastising Kim for her parental decisions. Similarly, OJ retaliated against Nicole Brown when she left or just attempted to leave him. He stalked her, he watched her having sex with her new boyfriend without their knowledge or consent, and he allegedly chastised her for having sex with her boyfriend while her children were asleep in the same house. Despite the fact, by the way, that he murdered Nicole outside of her house where her children were sleeping. And Kanye kind of did the same to Kim. Not the murder part, obviously. But after getting a text from Pete Davidson saying that he was in bed with Kim, which was inappropriate of Pete, but that's not Kim's fault, Kanye went onto Instagram and openly questioned why Kim wasn't busy with their children, as if you can't have a sex life and be a good mom at the same time. The fact that Kim was maybe in bed with Pete has nothing to do with how attentive she is to her children. I'm sure that Kim and Kanye occasionally had sex after their first child was born. Why would it not be okay for Kim to have sex with someone else while her and Kanye are separated, unless the issue is really just that Kanye wants to control who Kim is intimate with, which is abusive. While the public wasn't aware of all the allegations revolving OJ and Nicole, there wasn't a huge public outcry even when some of the abuse allegations were circulated. It's not comparable in terms of severity for their actions, but people's valid criticism of the Kardashians is being weaponized to defend Kanye's abuse of Kim 
in vaguely similar ways to how valid distrust for the LAPD was weaponized to defend OJ's plea of innocence despite ample evidence of his abuse of Nicole. I highly doubt Kim and Kanye's saga will end the same way that Nicole and OJ's did, but we need to take signs of domestic abuse seriously once they arise. Distrust of the Kardashians acknowledged? We have to emphasize that what's happening to Kim Kardashian in public view is absolutely not okay. To a degree, though, this kind of attention is exactly what the Kardashians signed up for, and perhaps their quest for fame started with an early traumatic exposure to it as children. As criticized as the Kardashians often are for exploiting their private lives and putting the children in their family in the spotlight when they're too young to consent to it, the O.J. Simpson trial is where they were first thrust into the spotlight without their consent. It's kind of ironic because the Kardashians are literally famous for their humanity, not like they're the most raw people in the world, but they have a reality show and they make money off of selling their personal lives. They're famous for being personalities. And yet, we neglect to think of the Kardashians as human a lot of the time. But I implore you to try to think of them as human beings as much as you can right now. Imagine that you're a kid, and there's a ginormous rift in your family due to split alliances following the murder of a woman you considered your aunt. I know that's a very weird headspace to get into, but if you're a child of divorce, you can maybe at least relate to the divided household aspect of this event. At the time of the divorce, Courtney was about 12, Kim was about 11, and Chloe was about 7 years old. I'm saying about because I just went based off of the years, not specific dates and birthdays, and I also didn't look into Rob Jr.'s age because, honestly, who cares? But around the time of the trial, Courtney was about 15, Kim was about 14, and Chloe was about 10. So just a few years after getting through their parents' initial split, the kids found themselves in the middle of a media firestorm that was tearing their family apart, and there was nothing they could do about it but try to withstand the public backlash, like strangers riding guilty on their father's car while they were in church. How this affected their boundaries regarding privacy can't be underemphasized, as this case continues to be a part of their narrative in questionably appropriate ways. I'm gonna play a clip of Chris in an interview talking about discovering OJ's abuse of Nicole after Nicole's death. Me and some of her other close friends all were really surprised and shocked by that because we felt like we really failed her as a friend. You know, you go through this and you discover things about somebody and it was, it was horrible. Although, um, you know, she and I were supposed to have lunch the next day, the day after she was murdered. And um, she said she wanted to show me some things and talk about what was in her safe. And so now 
unfortunately, it all makes sense that that's probably what she wanted to reveal to me that next day, which broke my heart because I always feel horrible that I didn't pay enough attention. That's a very sad and vulnerable moment for Chris, discussing her own shame and her last days with one of her best friends. If you didn't know, though, what that interview was filmed for, would you guess that those things were said in front of a live studio audience on the set of the Ellen DeGeneres show? You know, the daytime talk show where guests are expected to dance on their way to their seat? It's not really the platform where I would discuss my best friend's murder. But let's be honest, all throughout this episode, we've heard different discussions about this case taking place on late night shows, Dr. Phil, and the Howard Stern show. It's not normal to talk about traumatic events of your life in those settings, but the Kardashians have been doing that for the O.J. Simpson trial and most other horrible things that have happened to them for their entire lives. Kim especially became obsessed with the idea of becoming famous in her adulthood, and there's an argument to be made that this was possibly a complex trauma response to being within a media firestorm at an age in which she couldn't control her circumstances. At least now, when Kim is in the middle of a scandal, she has some sort of influence over it and she chose to be in that limelight, compared to the one she was thrust into as a child while her two authority figures were at war with one another. No matter what you think of them, the Kardashians have suffered abuse at the hands of the media and public, but they've also never really known anything else. Personally, I don't think they're capable of understanding how unusual those circumstances really are relative to the average person's life. These are the building blocks for the Kardashian empire. Kris Jenner attached herself to a man with a lifestyle most people covet, surrounded by fame, fortune, and most importantly, opportunity. If anyone knows how to capitalize on an opportunity, it's Kris Jenner. In her book, Kris talked about her specific goal to have six children, and between her two marriages, she accomplished exactly that, having her first four with Robert and then two more, Kendall and Kylie, with Caitlin. Did you know, by the way, that Kathy Lee Gifford is Kendall and Kylie's godmother? Her and Chris have been friends since the 70s, when she and Robert were still together. In this narrative, Chris's early integration into the world of celebrity will be her biggest asset going forward as she creates the Kardashian empire we now know. You can say whatever you want about Chris's strategic relationships with the rich and famous, including her very lucrative romances, but as much as the Kardashians are mocked for being talentless or famous for being famous, at least you can't say their success was an accident. And on that note, I'll see you next week.